Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to my Tuesday edition of Sims Chat Corner. Um, today is a special day because I always get really super excited when I get a chance to host a Milwaukee musician because, of course, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So today I'm very proud and honored to announce that I'm going to be hosting Joy Carini. Joey Carini is an individual who's been in the music scene for quite some time, actually. Um, we're very proud to say that he's based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, he is currently in two projects that I'm aware of, um, one of which which is the Saddlebrook Band, which we're going to be taking some time uh, talking about, and the second of which is that he's going to be uh, discussing his other band, which is actually a Led Zeppelin tribute band, which I always find rather interesting. We've had uh, Lynette Skinner on the show before, which is uh, basically a Leonard Skinner-type tribute band, and his particular individual band, which is No Quarter, like I said, is a Led Zeppelin tribute band. So I'm very excited to learn a little bit about some of the things that he's done musically in his career and talk about all this neat, interesting stuff. So without having you guys wait anymore, I'm going to get Joey on the line. Hey, Joey. Hey, Cindy. How are you? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm majorly excited to talk to you. <laughs> majorly. That's it's not cool. often I get Milwaukee anymore. I don't I don't get to talk to Milwaukee musicians anymore. Everybody is country and they're from way out of town and you're local. So this is awesome. Well, is it is it uh is this because of some strange sports rivalry, maybe? <laughs> no, not at all actually. You come highly okay, recommended good. from a bunch of different folks. So I'm like I've learned a lot about you in the last couple of days. I've listened to your music. I've done some research on you, and I'm majorly excited because tons and tons and tons of people are going to listen to this interview. So hopefully we can get you past, like, the 2,000 mark. That was my last interview. It was about 2,000 listens. So let's see if we can get here. And we'll see if anybody calls in to talk to you. Yes. Um, I kind of wanted to start off first, um, maybe going to explore a little bit about the man behind the musician, so to speak. Can you maybe tell our listening audience the history behind your formulation of your musical career? Sure. Um, it's it's basically well it's mixed up it's basically a mentality when I was younger that I was supposed to take the working man's musicians mentality that I was supposed to learn as many different styles as I possibly could just to basically be one of those guys that plays music to work and so because of that when when you start out playing you try and play music that'll get you over the hump and take you through the learning curve. And then when you have the ability to know that you can actually play, you start getting yourself in the style that you actually like and prefer. And then when, you know, when the quote-unquote adult years hit and the responsibilities come around, you start to look at the different options you have as a musician. So are you going to be a, uh, shall we say, an artist? Are you going to be a sideman, et cetera, et cetera. And so your mind has to open up. And so because of that, the more wide open your mind is to styles and performing platforms, the better chance you have of of being in the industry and surviving and having a career. Gotcha. I understand. Now, when you started out first and you were young, obviously, do you come from a musical background? Did you have that within your family genes or how'd that come about? Well, also kind of, you know, mixed up, a little migration. Uh, my father, who is the first generation, very Italian guy, uh, was playing accordion when he was younger uh, in the Milwaukee Accordion Club, which was kind of one of those things that if you are a young kid and you are Italian, you play an accordion. It's just a cultural thing. Really, there wasn't a ton of 
of music around. I think a couple of folks, I have two sisters and a brother, uh, parents, and I don't think that there was a ton of music going on. There was really good music being played all the time. I think everyone's got really fantastic taste in music in my family, but there wasn't like, you know, family jam sessions or or a dad in a band or anything like that. I, I became involved in music because I basically, I wanted to be a professional sports anything. And I graduated uh, eighth grade and I was pretty short. So I turned to music. Interesting. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. That is cool. Um, and, yeah. of course, obviously, like you mentioned, with the Italian background, I have a lot of friends who would do the same kind of thing, come from that kind of family where you're musically orientated. And that's that's really cool, actually. Um, did you find that when you were young, your intentions, like when you first started out, did you start by picking up a guitar or picking up a musical instrument, or were you composing first, or, or what happened at an early age for you? Uh, it started around, I think it was 9 or 10, um, I had some friends that were playing piano. You know, a lot of people were taking piano back then. It was a sort of a school, after-school-based instrument. You know, there's always a piano in, in like, choir, you know, when you're in grade school and in high school, like, staple instruments. Um, a lot of people were obviously taking band when you get into high school and, and a little bit before high school. Uh, so I took piano for a couple of months. It, for some reason, it just didn't, even when it was fun, like, we had group lessons and lessons with friends, it just didn't strike me as that as that thing that really is going to do it for me in music. So uh, I went to guitar because my oldest sister actually had played guitar or tried to. All I know, there was a guitar laying around the house after she went to college, and I messed around with it for a little bit, but I was, at that time, 9 or 10 years old, I was pretty heavily involved in sports and, you know, and causing trouble, basically. So mm-hmm. I was um, preoccupied, and I, I didn't focus. I didn't see it through or anything. It was five years later when I got um, involved in, in just in playing music. I think it was right around graduation of eighth grade that some of the dudes, you know, friends were starting to take up uh, guitar just as kind of a cool guy thing or, or maybe some of them were actually doing it because they were going to do it in the future. But um, mm-hmm. it just looked, it just, it struck me for some reason. And then I was contemplating it. You know, what are we going to do this first summer after grade school, you know, are we going to cause trouble and party all the time? Are we going to do sports stuff? Like, what what was the call? And, you know, people sort of, there was more guitar players floating around. It seemed like a little mini community it was going on a bunch, a bunch, um, a bunch, among a bunch of, a uh, lot of caffeine today, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, a lot of, a lot of people starting to play music, so I just kind of dove in. And uh, I was the last of a group of guys to do it. And we were all involved in sports at some point. And I had this weird little mission when I started playing. I felt like I was kind of behind the eight ball. Like I was the last of like six or seven people that I knew to play. And so I secretly treated it as like a competition, I guess. Mm-hmm. And because of this, I felt like I had to learn quick. Um, learn quickly, and it was it was a weekly comparison amongst friends. Like, well, what are you doing now? You know, I learned this cool thing. What cool thing do you have? You know, I'm a little heady. You, what are you going to do to catch up? Sort of thing. So okay. because of that, um, I kind of had to accelerate and get uh, get to a certain point where I could actually like get to a stage or get to a jam session and um, improve it. You know, that I was actually doing something, quote-unquote, cool. 
Gotcha. Now, can you detail for me, can you remember your very first musical performance? Where was it? What were you doing? Sure. I was in Whitefish Bay High School. I was a couple years in, and it was actually a song that some, I believe it was like freelance journalists, whatever you call want to call that, you know, people that write for the high school newspaper mm-hmm. were doing some like editorial things, I think for like an English class, and they have a after-school group. They were writing about something political, you know. Well, I don't know how politically involved it can be when you're 15, but I mean, right. we thought it was pretty deep, so they came to us, a couple of other people. I think it was me, another guitar player, and a singer, and we quote-unquote wrote a song. And I was the guitar player on the song, like the lead guy. And the first p- performance was these folks in the English class, their journalistic presentation, and then the musical supplement, which was our band. We had no name and just kind of a, a one-off sort of deal. And the song was like real simple, but that was it. We were in a classroom playing for a bunch of people. <laughs> How cool is that? That's neat. Yeah. I was like knowing the first little thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I wanted yeah. to kind of... um provide a bit of a backstory on you, obviously, in case people don't know, you're a graduate of UW-Milwaukee, and I know that you've attended the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music. I want to ask you, specifically, um, what would you say are the musical fundamentals that you have either appreciated or utilized most from having that education? I think going into those programs, another kind of a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants experience was to I just wanted to keep going so everybody else was in school, so I'll try going to school for music. So what happened is I declared the music major. I went to the conservatory at the age of 19. I was doing some other classes at UWM that were in conjunction with it, and I just loaded up with theory classes and performing and ensembles and anything to get my hands on the schedule allowed. I mean, they had night classes, morning, whatever. I was... I was there. I figured that if I would just inundate my brain with music and just do music that, you know, something like magical would happen to me and I would, you know, be this, this weirdo virtuoso guy. Not that I'm saying that, you know, virtuosos <laughs> are weirdos, but I was most likely going to be a pairing of the two. So that's what was going on over there. And it was a good year and a half. The best thing about that was it was something totally different than what I was doing as like a music homeschool guy. Cause as a guitar player that just wants to learn some, some jams and eventually solo and be in a band and, you know, do what a band does for anybody. It was structure and theory. Basically it was like learning a foreign language because there's all of this music limbo, lingo, my fault that goes or limbo and whatever. Um, there's all this language that goes with it that when you're trying to communicate to certain folks that helps you basically get the message across from one musician to the other. The interesting part is if you're, say, traveling to a foreign country and you're talking to a bunch of other people from you know across the world and you're in France and you're trying to speak French to a bunch of, you know, fellow Americans or people who have never been to France before, everyone's got varying levels of French in them or, or, or basically, you know, prowess of the language. 
And that's the same thing that happens now. It's like everyone that you play with, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? Everyone that you play with, you collaborate with, you communicate with, everyone's got a different path with migration. They've got different um, language sets. And so you have to kind of find your, you have to adapt to the situation a lot. And that was that whole, that whole mentality of trying to like, you know, survive with the career in music. If you acquire the language and you can have a good basis for it, then you can communicate and hopefully it'll help you sustain a little longer. If that makes yeah, any sense well. at all. I, I use one of my uh, yeah I, I use one of my like wacky robust analogies there so forgive me there. <laughs> Quite <laughs> so, all right, you're doing just fine actually. You're very yeah. um, articulate and I like that very much actually. Writer to writer here, it's it's it, amazing. It, to... it, it's, it's the caffeine for fully yeah. the caffeine. I, yeah, I kind of figured that. We'll just we'll keep yeah, riding yeah. that caffeine wave as far as we can take it, Joey. That's okay. That's cool. Um, That's cool. I'm curious, and this is just really a Cindyism question because I, I thought it was interesting because I know you had noted about um, studying psychology to some degree. So I guess I wasn't yeah. sure if you ever utilized that aspect or were able to, or would you ever consider doing something relative to that? Well, that was that was the twist after the first year and a half of the music major. I kind of looked at what was going on in the program, which was totally cool. But I was kind of a, um, I was kind of a punk and. And still am, whatever. Uh, I, you know, I just didn't really feel like, I, instead of acquiring the rules of music, which is totally cool, I acquired a set of rules of music large enough to think that I was good to go and then basically broke out of the program. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to take this whole, you know, rock and roll mentality into my music and just try and bend the rules as much as I possibly could in terms of like playing and, and writing and, and jamming and whatever, you know, term you want to call it. Well, after I dropped out of the program, you know, now I've got the parents on me trying to figure out what I'm going to do. So I went into psychology mostly because uh, uh, the world's kind of crazy, I guess. So <laughs> it, it seemed, I took a psych 101 class and it just kind of seemed like it made sense. It came very easy. Uh, I have, like I said, I've got a full family of Italian people. We're all very on the table. We're very loud, and they're all older than me. So I was managing to get through many psychology classes and not study and not read, and it came very naturally because I just, you know, I'd seen all this stuff before, or at least a big bunch of it, Mm -hmm. um, just because of family experiences, and I just... I took it all the way through, declared the major. At one point, I was fully committed to being a psychotherapist, like the sit-down guy with the couches and the cool room and the and the whole setting, and I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to solve people's mental problems, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to counsel, and then I'm going to send you on your way. And I was going to mm-hmm. maybe, like, intertwine it with some music. So we're still playing music 15 years after I graduated, so I, the, that's, that plan is still out there. Just don't know when it's going to happen. But um, mm-hmm. as far as using the degree, I mean, I counsel myself every time I'm in, you know, stuck at a red light or in traffic, trying to get crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of psychology in in writing music. I think there's some uh, messages that are in the like writing process or 
you have to find out if you're going to write a song that's about like your broken heart or your, you know, the whole blues thing where it's like my baby left me this and this and that. It's like I think it takes a little bit for you as someone to actually get in touch with feelings that have been bashed or hurt or something that annoys you or some piece of anger. Like there's a psychological process that basically pulls the emotion and puts it into word that puts it into song. You know, some people some people are so upset by a negative experience they just, they just want to deny it and they want to push it into some like you know, back corridor of their brain. But I think it's really pretty admirable if you get it, you know, it can be, like I mentioned, an old blues thing. It can be a pop thing. It can be anything that, that translates an experience into song and then play the song over and over and over again and then sell it with commitment is, is a pretty strong psychological moment, I think, for anybody, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I do. I agree. I love your outlook. I do. I don't say that about everybody either, by the way. I just do. I like the way that you present things, and I like the way you talk about your music. Very inspiring. Just throwing that out there. Speaking Very of which, cool. I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue to toot your horn a little bit here to the individuals who don't know you at all. Um, sure. I just want to accentuate on a portion of the plethora of talent that you are. I mean, I know that you play guitar, obviously bass, mandolin, mm-hmm. pedal steel guitar. I know that you've done band leading as well as providing musical instruction. Maybe describe for us uh, which of these do you find to be most challenging for yourself? Um, that's a great question. I Challenging right now, is, and then there's challenging in general. There's almost like the short-term and long-term. I think I'm trying, super, super accentuate the word, trying to play pedal steel guitar, this 10-string, sit-down, country-western traditional, you know, western swing thing these dudes that started playing these things, I don't even know when the first one was built. I'm just going to go on the limb here and say the 40s, 50s. It's still in, obviously, a lot of country music. It's in a lot of, you know, Jerry Garcia played one, Jimmy Page played one. The control on that instrument is like when you play, when you see an electric guitar player play, you know, you see Jimi Hendrix and you see this guy just passion and raw and this and that and right, right notes, wrong notes, all this stuff made into like this pretty little package that is like Little Wing, you know, or Purple Haze. And then you see this pedal steel guitar. They always sound pretty. They always sound like super shimmery and and graceful and perfect. Like to sit down at that thing is the control and the you cannot have wrong notes. You know, you have super precise uh you've got left hand, right hand, you've got these steel pedal benders with your feet. A couple of them have knee levers. There's like a sonic approach. That thing is super, super challenging. Um, In terms of like the challenging instrument, that's the one. That's the one I actually practice, you know, the most. When I get time to practice, I practice that. Uh, Bass guitar is challenging because it's another instrument you can't necessarily... Well, I guess you can play it, like, with reckless abandon from time to time, but, like, we play in this group, Lova Nova, and it's such a critical instrument to to fit into certain spots. So that's challenging, but a lot of that comes natural and easy, and that just comes from listening to music over the last God knows how many years. Mm-hmm. Guitar is challenging because, you know, if you're a lead guitar player, there's there's aspects of how you make a solo. 
you can make a, a guitar solo just be noisy. It can be memorable. It can be singable or whistleable, even to like the least musically inclined individual in the world. That's kind of challenging too. Like, can you write a hit song? Can you write a hit melody? Can you write a guitar solo that, you know, even the most tone deaf person in the world can sing to? You know, when they're like half asleep, when they're least in touch with their long-term musical memory. But short term, I'd say that pedal steel guitar is a trick. Ah, okay. Now I wanted to ask you, at what point did you opt to incorporate the teaching part into your resume? Where did that come about? Another kind of a whim, kind of a trial and error thing. One of my closer friends, I'm, I'm still actually pretty close to him, um, he and I went to high school together, and he was a year under me, and I was, you know, 19, living with my parents still, and uh, just trying to think of another part-time job that won't drive me crazy as a college student. And um, someone recommended teaching guitar. And at this point, I'm only into guitar for five years. And I had this mentality that I had to be in it for at least ten to tell people what to do or act like I know what I'm talking about. So when I decided to start teaching, you know, there was no training, there was no how to talk to people, there was no try and convey an easy method of trying to do what you're doing onto them because guitar's tricky because it's there's a physical limitation and there's just information that you've got to convey to people and sometimes it can really throw people off. So I was 19, I had a student that was at least easy to deal with because we were buddies and then I eventually got into just a small little store and had a couple of students that were total fans of how I did stuff and there were students that I totally freaked out. We would go over a technique or something that was new and I would be, I would say, oh, this is totally fine, this is easy. You know, why, so like, why can't you do this? This is totally easy for me. You know, why can't you do this? And they would look at my hands and I would just see their, you know, they'd run out the door. It was just goofy. So, um, it, I, I liked it, didn't love it in the beginning. And then now that I can actually understand people a little bit more, I think the psychology degree kind of helps a little bit. You can kind of like empathize with someone that's, trying to learn something totally new that's not easy to do. It's not one of those things that comes in the first two weeks. Everyone learns different. They're private lessons, so everyone's got a different learning style. So once that came, uh, then it became something that I do that's actually pretty enjoyable. So there are some students that learn quickly, and there are some students that just, you know, you have to do extra creative things to get it over. I imagine so. Now, um, this is a question I've never asked a musician before, so ironically, you'll be the first one to answer it for me. For yourself personally, I'm just curious, approximately how much time does a musician like yourself dedicate to um, rehearsal and, of course, obviously tuning of instruments, all that? I mean, take me into our world a little bit and just how much practice time and rehearsal and all of that is involved with what you do. Depends on the week. If, for example one of the bands I play with has several shows. 
uh, it's the ideal plan is to go into this into this mode because when you're playing that much, you're trying to balance work, you're trying to balance you know regular everyday life and relationships and family and so on and so forth. Uh, it's 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 challenging just like anything else. So there are some times when I have to pull back, almost like take a a half day, I guess, or, or take a two-day vacation. But instead of vacationing, you're, you're claiming yourself about those 48 hours off or how many hours off. You're claiming that this week I'm a musician, that's it. I'm just playing, my head is there, you know, I'm on the road or I've got six shows this week or I've got, we're making a record, whatever it is. The best thing to do, if you can, is to just... Totally live and breathe it. So as far as the hours per week, you know, if you play three or four shows, four hours apiece, three hours apiece, it can be anywhere from, you know, nine to 12 hours or plus or minus two. And then you've got some warm-up time each day, practice time, maintenance time. Maybe it can be, it can be a full-time 40-hour-a-week thing, easy. Uh, once you get past, like, your learning curve, or curves, I should say, because they redevelop the more you challenge yourself. Like when I was 20, 21 years old, the practice time per day was roughly, I mean, it was like five, six hours a day. It was it was pretty intense. And it was just because there was so much to do. And, you know, I was in school part-time for a semester, so I was able to to practice that and just really hit it hard. And so now, if I were, obviously, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it it varies quite a bit. Um, for example, this week there's only two shows, and there'll be a rehearsal thrown in there, so it's going to be less. But next week, there's a bunch of shows, and like in March, there's 14 gigs booked, very in varying settings, shapes or forms, whatever. So it's going to be a lot. So. Um, as long as the wheels don't come off or anything else that I'm doing, usually I sacrifice sleep <laughs> quite a bit. I was, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, so that's the first thing that gets sacrificed, and then it's, you know, then I just turn into a ghost at times, and then I come back, and then I'm, hopefully everything's okay, you know? I, yep, I understand. I got gotcha. you. Yep. Now, as I see here, your realm of experience extends to the genres of uh, rock, blues, jazz, and country. I wanted to ask you, do you have a personal favorite? I think deep down, if you look at, like, the wiring in my brain, I think that there's a rock and roll, just a very piggish rock and roll person. And it's it's the classic British rock. It's the things that are the foundations behind, like, the inspiration of what, why I started to play. I, I, I do believe that between... Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. I think if it weren't for those two bands and everything that those those bands did for music going forward, what they did for the scene at their current time and their roots, it's like that body of music between those two bands with in those three phases of time. Mm-hmm. That's so much right there. It's it's it, we can talk for an hour on that alone. Sure. So I almost feel like I owe the rock. <laughs> genre like you know my heart and soul whatever uh 
deep down, I think it's definitely rock. I, I have an appreciation for so much, you know, because of all that stuff that those bands were doing, or those group, those two groups were doing, because they were so diverse. It helped me get into, you know, roots of, of blues and and weird folk stuff, and like I mentioned, pedal steel, which stems into country. It just totally helped. I, I had a very wide open perspective right away, mostly because of those two guys or bands groups, whatever. No, sure. I understand. Do you think that there's any uh, particular area that you haven't tried yet musically that you'd like to try? It's a good question. Um, I always say, like, if I had to be in a, the next type of band going forward, it would be blank. And it's kind of wide open. Uh, I really have no clue. I have no really? clue. Yeah. I, I haven't. I can't put a finger on it at all. Um, wow. Yeah, that's the weirdest thing. It's like I've, I've had all these decisions made the whole time I've been playing about what to do and how to do it, and I'm really not too sure what it would be. Like if you put all the different options about where to go, whether it's a group I've been in before or something I haven't done before, I have no clue. I do know that this is kind of a hilarious thing. It will hilarious and you know, my own weird little, you know, world. Um, I think it would be really a total riot to be in, like, a rocking shred band. Like, it's not like death metal, nothing totally weird with, like, you know, guns and skulls and bullets and blood and stuff. But, I mean, just, like, (laughs) something a little bit more, like, a little less serious, but that's just got, Mm -hmm. like, you know a million gazillion notes, but in a fun way. Like, almost like 80s, but without the theatrics of makeup, guys wearing makeup and putting hairspray in their large hair. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's tough to describe because I really don't know. (laughs) Something something guitar-based like that, or if I was a bass player in a band, I would probably do... I I don't even know. I have no clue. I've stumped the him. The weirdest folks. thing. Did you get this? I've stumped him. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Okay, you can I think have no on that. Clue. Let me know at some point in time, somewhere down the road when you figure it out, because I'm curious. Yeah. I am very I'm, curious I'm, to see where it'll go. Yeah, I'm lost. I'd have to go to that whole, like, Musicians Anonymous where we don't know where the art's going to take us next group <laughs> or whatever you want to call that. Yes, I agree. Definitely. Um I want to talk a little bit because I know in the past that you've done various uh, spots as far as television and guest appearances, of course. Um, maybe tell the listeners uh, your best experience and your worst experience as it relates to doing some of these appearances and as well as the best experience you've had show-wise, okay. meaning playing. The worst experience is definitely age 19, 4th of July, Whitefish Bay, Clody Park, traditional thing they've been doing forever. And here's the it's like a it's almost like a, a childhood impression thing. When you're when you're younger and you see events that are happening around you. You see Summerfest here in Milwaukee, you see the local stuff. To me, you know, playing Summerfest when you you know when you when you're when you're there when you're eight years old and you see who did I see when I was eight years old? I don't know. I'll throw out um Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or something like that, the Allman Brothers, and 
you're at the Miller stage and there's 10,000 people there and you're like, well, if I ever get out there, I would make it. I would, that, that would be it. I'd be happy. Or when you're way younger, five, six years old, and you go to Clody Park, which is six blocks from your house, you know, as a child, and your parents take you to the 4th of July thing and you, you go to the parade at 11 o'clock in the morning and then you go to the park and there's a a gazillion people there, even though it's just really just, you know, Whitefish Bay and, you know, just the village folks, but it looks like a ton. It looks like all the people in the world. Mm-hmm. It's on the lake and there's fireworks and there's a stage and there's a band and it's just like the craziest 12 hours, you know, you look forward to it every year. And then all of a sudden, you're 19, someone knows someone that wants your band to play. And so you're like, dude, this is totally going to be it. This is going to be awesome. There's going to be people there. There's going to be people built in. We're going to play. It's going to be this great day. We're going to be in the parade. And, you know, the list of, like, how awesome it's going to be just doesn't stop, okay? Mm-hmm. So we prepped. My answers are super long, by the way. I'm totally sorry <laughs> about that. So That's fine. You're being you. Right. Right. Anyway, um, so we prep for weeks. It's a trio thing. It's a friend of mine, two really close friends of mine. One of the friends of mine had wrote some music, and you know we were really excited to play our own stuff, kind of throw in a couple covers that were cool. We had this hour set planned, and we just rehearsed, rehearsed, and rehearsed, and just loved rehearsing, loved doing it. We were on it. We were this. We were nervous. All the, all the stuff that goes along with a, a show like this. So here's 4th of July. We get there 10 o'clock in the morning. As soon as the parade starts, it's like black clouds, raining wind, the rainstorm. And so the parade goes on. It's light rain. The temperature dips to like 60. This is July 4th. Not supposed to happen, right? So, so the parade is whatever. You know, there's pictures of us. We look like wet dogs, just not happy kids. And then we go. We have about five, six hours to kill. And so we do our load up, and, and the weather starts to improve a little bit. And so we're thinking there's, like, light at the end of the tunnel. We're going to have a great day and rebound and all this stuff. So it rains again. I, we have all this gear up on stage. We try and run, go for tarps, like, make sure we don't get electrocuted, make sure nothing gets ruined. Then they're telling us the set's uh, cut in half. So now we have 30 minutes. Uh, then we go up on stage and play. Everything sounds weird. The mics don't work. The sound is totally off. We're just, it's just worse and worse by the minute. Um, Then we literally play for 15 minutes. And then when it's time, we didn't know the ending was coming. So after that one song, they're they're pulling us off stage. And I don't even know who who, who it was. It wasn't wasn't like the organizers of of the fest or anything. It was like whoever was running sound that day. This is, you know, this is, 16 years ago, I don't know how many years ago it is, a lot, 18 years ago. Whoever that sound crew was was, like, totally doing the, you know, get those little kids off stage thing. And we were just like, oh, okay, okay, oh, man, oh, don't ruin my stuff. And I see my, like, guitar flying across the stage. And and then the worst part is someone videotaped the whole thing. And we just, we look like, we look like that was it. This is the last day we're going to play music ever, so... Oh my God! That, How awful! Yeah, yeah, that gig was ridiculous. So the best part about it was, if we can recover from a gig like this and keep going, then I think pretty much anything's possible. So 
All of us did. We're not psychologically scarred. We didn't have any, you know, moments of insanity, you know, trying to like shoot. We were like, we're going to get back to these guys. We were see these guys on the stage, and we were all like, mad for a day, and then we were fine the next day, and here we are. So Look at that. That, gig was, that gig was, yeah, that gig was stupid. Oh, and all like, our family and friends were there. It's like all these people that you're like, you're hiding in your room playing music for five years, and then you come out with that. Your parents are like, I bought you a guitar for what? Like, exactly. Like, whatever. Oh, so that's no. that gig. Um, okay. In terms of in terms of the better gigs, the best gigs, the best. Uh, it seems like the last three years there's been a tie for a good, you know, three or four of them that have been really, really spectacular. Uh, there've been some gigs way back when I really started to hit it pretty hard as early as even like that same summer. The worst gig and the best gig happen like two months apart. There's a there's a tie for like about ten. But I, I think in general, like the best gigs are when you can play in front of a really enthusiastic crowd. You play the songs you like. You play them like you never have before, and the band is all on the same page with that whole mentality. You get off stage and it just it just feels like that all this work and all the stuff that you've done will actually continue you forward and you will be able to just keep going and everyone else will be going with you. So I know that sounds all deep, but that's, uh, those are the best gigs. There's, there's, there's too many to count. And I last, but like I said, three, four years, um, quickly, there was one, we opened up for Peter Frampton, uh, at Summerfest, and I don't know how many people were there. There was like, there had to have been at least six, seven thousand people there, maybe more. Wow. You know, and that's for a local band. That's that's significant in, in like a hundred degree heat. You know, so I mean, it was just cool to do. Uh, done Country Thunder with Saddlebrook, the country band, but the last three years in a row, all those shows have been over the top spectacular, and. There were some shows, like I said, when I was 19. You play your first bar show, and it's just loaded full of people. And there's all sorts of, like, side plots happening with the crowd, and you're just watching it, and you're, you know, you go from playing in some garage to that. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, well, this is the best gig ever. Or, you, you know, you travel to a, um, a, a marquee market, you know, that's, you know, Chicago or New York, or you travel and you have a good gig. Like, those are, those are great, too, you know, because you're in... You're in this market, in this in this industry of playing music, and if you can ever stand out and, and have a great gig and, and and make an impression, it's all that. All those are good. Gotcha. I got it. Now I'm going to toot your horn a little bit more here. Now this sure. to me just transcends to just the true testament of real success, and this is in my eyes, of course, and I'm sure people will agree. I know that you've played with over, uh, I believe it's 50 groups over approximately 18 years, and averaging mm-hmm. basically 100 shows a year. Um, I have to ask you how a musician accomplishes such a feat like that. I mean, that's that's tremendous. I mean, I, first of all, I'm curious to ask you, was there enough diversity in doing all of that to keep it interesting for you, or was there ever a point in time where you are kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of thinking I dig the acoustic solo thing? Diversity's been, been there the whole time, and that's, you know, it, I think a lot of it is um, 
you know, this is such a cliche thing to say, but I, I think I am pretty lucky uh, because if you, you know, not, not everybody that goes to even like, like I said, bigger markets, you know, there's Chicago. I mean, I, I don't know if I could find the the same guys that have also turned into like, you know, some really pretty strong and, and solid friendships. I don't know if you can, if you can guarantee that, you know, there are people that go to bigger markets to quote unquote make it. And it's like, it sometimes it doesn't work. So and maybe, maybe it would have, I have no clue. That's, that's totally hindsight and it's totally uh, a guess. So in terms of the diversity, I met some guys early on, you know, I've been playing with one of these guys since I was 16 and a couple of guys actually. And we've made records all over the board in terms of genre and, and sound and style. That's just, you know, good friends making what we think is decent music that sounds what we think is pretty good, and we mm-hmm. just keep doing it. You know, some some of the stuff that we do, you know, back in the day, obviously we're still learning how to play. You know, was I'm sure was not as not as great, we'll say. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, I've made a ton of mistakes. You know, like I said, I I took that punk mentality into music. And I was, you know, punkish at times all the way through my 20s. I wasn't like this. I wasn't perfect by any means. So it's like all the even mistakes that I made translated into something cooler, still making mistakes like, you know, every hour on the hour. So I just try and learn from those and and make sure that they're not repeated and try and work to strengths, I guess. So, you know, for example, in in Lova Nova, it's, it's this group of four guys that to me can play anything. Style-wise, they get it. They always have, have gotten it. They can recognize melody. They can recognize Collins. They know how to record. They understand the ups and downs of, of the industry and just how you know people work and how we work together. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest challenge about playing music is um, keeping a group together just because logistically it's tricky. And it's not because of people, it's just because of, like, how life is. You know, if, if you have to, you know, pay certain bills or do whatever or someone's in another group, you know, schedules don't line up, it's just logistics. You know, before it was like, you know, when you're in high school, it's like, you know, you have a football game, so you have to just practice, do stuff like that, and then someone doesn't show up. Now it's like if you can get everyone on the same page and, and just be patient and tolerant, things have, you know, better legs and just last longer. I think if you're friends with some people, most people, you can be more understanding. You know, there's going to be pros and cons to everyone's personalities and strengths and weaknesses. And if you can just, you know, it's like a relationship, full-on relationship. You know, if everyone was mad at everything, everyone did. In any relationship, you know, we'd all live in separate homes. It's the same thing with music. We'd all be solo acoustic acts. I've heard statements like, I'm done, done. I'm done. I'm I'm going to go solo. I'm going to play solo piano for the rest of my life. Hmm. And I'm like, that's no fun. So but some people like that. Some people are wired to do solo, and some people do better solo. Some people right. do better in a band, band ensemble. I got so. you. Um, I got to ask this. Uh, with having such a rigorous schedule, um, 
does it ever prove to be overwhelmingly daunting for you? Or you just are like, man, I'm burnt. I'm just sick of this. I need a break. Because um, I know you preface the two-day vacation at times. But does it just become too much after a while, just the juggling? It's. I do feel burnt at times, but I know that I can, at least at this point of my, we'll call it aging process, I feel that I can recover. I think that there's a system to it. I um. I don't abuse it too. I sound like I'm like, you know, I'm up 23 hours a day and I'm this crazy person. It's just like sometimes, yeah. But, I mean, I figured out a way to at least have a recovery period. Not every time that I have like a crazy week. Let's take Summerfest in Milwaukee. It's 11 days and a freelance musician slash a guy that's involved in a couple of bands might have up to, I don't know how many gigs, two gigs, ten gigs, and there are different points of the day. You know, there was a day once where I had three Summerfest gigs. It was like noon, four, and a headliner. And so the noon gig, yeah, the noon gig, and you had a gig the night before on a Friday night. The noon gig requires you to be there at 10, 30, 10 o'clock, and then you play three hours or two hours or four, whatever it is, and you get a rush to the other stage, and you go to the other stage. It's just like, and they're all over the place. So if you can balance that out, then you'll be able to recover from those burned out things. I think, you know, in, in life, like, people have moments like that. Like, you know, I've got a sister who's got, um, you know, five kids and another one who's got four. And then, you know, everyone's got families. So they get, it's the same sort of, like, mentality, like, okay, I have to look at what's going to come here and I have to somehow balance time. I'm always challenged by this whole this time thing. I've been trying to deal with it ever since I got serious with music in school. You know, I'm always like, I always used to be a last minute dude. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm, if you can find a way to balance it out, you know, you'd be much more effective and not a crazy person. However, crazy can be fun too. But <laughs> you know, more I love crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like if you can balance it out, then it can be fun. But I mean. Yeah, there are some times where I look back at the schedule and I'm like, I have no idea how that even happened. But for music, it's such a passionate thing. It's something that you believe you can't live without. You just find a way to make it work. Sometimes it comes with a a lower or higher cost. Who knows? Correct. I agree with you. Now I'm excited we get to talk about one of your bands, Saddlebrook. I have to tell you, people, that I have listened to the music of Saddlebrook, and I have to tell you, Joey, that I'm very impressed. I'm embarrassed to say I have never seen Joey Carini play. Um, I'm anticipating seeing him play this weekend with one of his bands, um, which we'll get into, obviously, because I need have a gig coming up. I want to yeah. talk a little bit about um, Saddlebrook is a, is a country band, obviously. Some of the accolades, of course, and what I was excited to find out is that you've been a Whammy nominee for Best Country Band three years in a row. And mm-hmm. I know that you've also played during the CMA Festival in the years of 2011 and 12. Now, first off, how were you presented with that opportunity as far as working with the CMA? How did that come about? Well, let's just go back even further and point out that I met Saddlebrook. They were around a couple of years, I think a few years, before I came into their lives. You know, mm-hmm. uh, okay. I met these guys on these guys. They almost sound like you know random folks. But, I mean, three years <laughs> ago they were. It was three years ago right around now. I was on Craigslist in the and the musicians tab from Milwaukee. And I was I just joined Lovanova. 
we had our Led Zeppelin tribute band that I was that I'm doing. I have all these little side things going on. But there was one thing I was like, you know what? I studied country guitar just to the point where I can actually I can hang and get better. I think mm-hmm. I want to join a country band just so I can like, you know, hang out with some meet some new friends, play some gigs, you know, go to go to the you know, different country fests and, and just play a telecaster and just play country guitar. Like I, I wanted to do that. I had like a total a total like you know, craving to get out there and do that. So I looked on Craigslist and I typed in um guitar. That's all. And for some freakish reason there were several bands that appeared legit online that were looking for a lead guitar player. Honestly, I, I, I still look on there just for fun, and I haven't seen it. It's just weird how that rolled out. I saw several different bands that were looking for a lead guitar player. Mm-hmm. So I had a couple auditions, some really unique, funky auditions <laughs> with great stories behind them. Uh, this one, when I walked into their the rehearsal space, it was it was cool right when I walked in the door. They looked cool. They were friendly. They were fun to, you know, trade stories with. They had been in Nashville a couple times. I'd been there a couple times. And we hit it off. The drummer even joked. He's like, oh, that guitar's cool. You don't even need to play. You're just in. <laughs> you know, before I even played a note, he's like, oh, that guitar's awesome. We, you don't need to have an audition. I think they were having a hard time finding a player, a lead player. And... I think they had had some like pretty funny characters come to the door, and I looked somewhat the part, with the guitar looking somewhat the part, and they were like, "Oh, this is cool." But we played some some songs that I had known, and uh, I had uh, traded some stories with them, and we found out we knew some mutual friends, and we hit it off. It was cool. It's been cool for three years. It gets better every day. Those guys. It's it's been so fun, and every time we have you know, a really great show that's got a ton of internet exposure and a ton of great feedback and et cetera, et cetera. We joke, like, I'll give the singer a high five and I'll say, I met you on Craigslist. You know, just this goofy, goofy, like, looking back, like, that's where it started. Sure. I imagine so. Was that um, a more overwhelming experience, meaning, like, doing the festival for CMA as compared to doing, you know, a local gig, I would presume. I mean, what was that experience like for you? How did that compare to other performances? Well, that was unique. I'd been in Nashville once with Willie Porter. We had played there. Uh, Saddlebrook went down to the CMA, not CMAs. We went down to, uh, oh, just was like a band vacation. We went down, like, March 2011 to go do like an acoustic trio version of the band at uh, Tootsie's right down there on Broadway. Mm-hmm. They had been down there, I think, a year before or two years before, and they sat in at an open jam, and one of the guys that's in the fold at Tootsie's liked the trio, the acoustic trio, and he asked the trio, I think, to do some sort of house gig or some sort of residency, and he was talking to the singers of the band, and, and they were telling him that they don't, they don't live in Nashville. And he's just like, oh, you know, we we don't we live in Milwaukee. And he's like, well, if you come down here, you know, we'll, uh, we'll have you guys play. You know, we like you, et cetera, et cetera. So we went down there in March 2011. We did a daytime show at like 12, lunchtime show, 12 to 2. 
brought some friends down from Milwaukee, made it look like we were more important than we actually were, and a couple of the guys from the, the place saw us, and they asked us to do the CMA week, uh, 2011 and 2012, and it's like, that is, that is just, it's hard for me to put into words like the fanfare that goes on down there. That city is, that city is pretty much alive at all moments, all times, especially that, like, that center of the city, the Broadway area and the Bridgestone Arena and all that stuff. But that CMA week, I mean, that is, that is busy, real busy. And playing it is a total riot. I imagine so. And combined, of course, like like I was mentioning, of course, um, my sister is an acoustical singer here in town, and um, she got a Whammy nomination, so we've been through that experience before, you know, the hoopla and the excitement and the pride that comes along with that. Um, I wanted to ask you, and it may sound like a dumb question. I don't think it is. Do you find that in getting that Whammy nomination, it seems to have boosted the image of the group, meaning popularity-wise, show attendance, I mean, I know it's a foregone conclusion. They're a whammy nominee, but in your own mind, realistically, has it really changed that much for you? I I think it helps. I mean, anytime you get your name attached to something that has any sort of accolade, it can be small, medium, or large. It can be local or national or, you know, even smaller or larger than that. It's always going to help. And you attend the award show and and you talk to, to folks and it just... It mostly brings people together. It creates a conversation. It starts talks between people that don't necessarily see each other uh, every day or every week or even every month. So in that regard, we appreciate the the nomination just because we are mentioned in the in the same, you know, the same experience level that are, like, people that have been doing it for way longer than we have and in a large group of people that are all trying to, make a music scene a music scene. So it definitely helps. Uh, we, of course, would like to be victorious and win. That'd be cool. Uh, but if, if not, that's cool, too. We're still a part of what's happening, and that's the biggest part about it. If we can be a part of something that is moving forward, and we either help or ask to get help, help for it, whatever you want to call it, uh, all of that is good. So I'm sure it helps, you know, keep our name in the mix on some additional level. I mean, it, it must. Definitely, I would agree with that. And it's just yeah. it's nice to be nominated, obviously. I know that's cliche, too. It's like, yeah, it's so nice to be nominated because my sister is always kind of pissy, like, yeah, I didn't win again. True. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, you know, you want to have that accolade. But it's just nice to have that, obviously, because that clearly Absolutely. speaks to your work. It definitely does, yeah. certainly. Um, I want to switch gears because I want to talk about uh, the second band because we could talk all day long about every single thing you've done, which I wish we could do, actually. But we're going to talk about No Quarter. And to those that don't know that, that's Led Zeppelin tribute band. Uh, I just got to throw this out here, and this is my personal opinion. Whether it's classic rock, country, um, you're playing, you personally, you just seem like such a strong player and so very well versed musically. You're so impressive. Just watching you on a stage because I was watching some of your videos, very well put together. That's all I can say about that. I'm impressed. I can't wait to see you in person. Um, I want to touch on this a little bit. Uh, I know that some of your inspirations, I know you've mentioned Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, um, Led Zeppelin, and Miles Davis. 
Can you maybe talk to me a little bit about what you admire about those icons and also what you enjoy most of working in a tribute band? Sure. It's uh we'll see how long winded this answer is gonna be. I'm gonna challenge myself <laughs> to like keep it in a certain you know, certain box. Um the influences there's so many different reasons that those guys there's I mean, I listened to so much music, you know, back when CDs were happening. It was like, those were like textbooks pretty much. You know, I have, I still have CDs. They're almost like a wall decoration now, but still have them. But I have a ton of them. But in those, you know, batches of music that I have, whatever format it might be, I, I named this, you know, thing. I call it the Big Five. Basically, the Big Five plus Miles Davis. And the Big Five was Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, Hendrix, Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Eddie Van Halen. And then plus Miles Davis, because it was like the Big Five guitar players and then Miles Davis just being his mentality, his his uh, view on music, his view on life, you know, the view on how he wanted to push the envelope. And then all those guys, all those dudes at at some point or at multiple points in their careers, obviously they set out to play music. They set out to do something different than what all of the other people were doing around them, or at least kind of share and do something different, combine those two things. They pushed the envelope, and they had this look that was attached to it all. So it was like music, and for the guitar players, it was just as a guitar player. Because there's guys in bands, there's musicians, and then there's just, there's you know, there's instrumentalists. And so you can, as a student, look at all these guys and take, if you want to categorize, you know, I overanalyze pretty much, you know, everything. So it's like I was able to use that for a positive for once and look at all of what these guys were doing. I read their biographies and watch videos and watch how they evolved through the years. And they just seem to keep... You know, like if Jimi Hendrix was still alive, you know, I have, there's always a question like, what would this dude still be doing? I, we have no clue. Um, because in that guy's short term that he was here, that he was the Jimi Hendrix experience and then Band of Gypsies and so on and so forth, and he died when he was 27, and he was, quote, unquote, on the scene as the entity of Hendrix for like three and a half years, mm-hmm. which is pretty freaky, mind-blowing, like relative to what's out there. Um, the other guys, as they're going through, they're still pushing. Obviously, Miles Davis passed away, you know, 20 plus years ago. Right. But they they just they keep pushing. They keep trying to reinvent, and in some ways, in shapes and forms. I'm not going to go and you know play uh, in a gold LeMay blazer that Miles Davis would play in in the 80s. I'm not going to, I mean, he had like straight up perm, you know, curly hair and all that stuff. But, you know, his, his looks were sometimes crazy with the times and Eric Clapton had a, had a total wafro, you know, he had a, he had a poofy hairdo. So there's some things that I take from them and things that I leave, but it's that mentality. Like what can I do to push the envelope in terms of how I play how we write, and and then then the other thing that I haven't mentioned is how these dudes blend all these styles, whether it be current or whether it be roots. Like Jimmy Page had this 
he's he's not really like he's not really noted that much for his like acoustic finger style playing or his pedal steel playing or his folk writing. He's Jimmy Page, the guy in the dragon suit with the left paw and the bow and you know, the stage antics with the double neck and which awesome, don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. I mean, there's aspects of these dudes that are out there that you can I mean, you can learn about music uh, uh, tons of different avenues of music just from looking at these six guys. And as a guitar player from those five guys, you have plenty to chew on if you just looked at those guys for, say, five years, you know? Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure that I would have been able to attach to some other guys, but I, I wonder what it would have, what, how I would have been able to, like, look at music if I chose different people, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. No, I imagine so. Now, go ahead. No, go ahead. As I'm saying, those those were definitely. I look back and I'm glad that those were the 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 idols. Okay, and obviously now you you are in this uh, tribute band for Led Zeppelin, which must be ultimately Mm -hmm. very exciting for you, obviously. And how does that compare? I mean, I don't mean to compare the two. Let's say Saddlebrook is compared to this, but but you know, what do you take away from the tribute band experience that you don't necessarily get on the other side of the fence? Let's say with the the country Saddlebrook. Well, the the biggest thing, obviously, is, you know, stylistically, you're talking about not two totally ends of the spectrum, but sometimes you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a rehearsal last night for the Led Zeppelin show that's coming up. We have a Saddlebrook rehearsal coming up on Friday, and it's like my mentality has shifted completely. So it's, it'll shift. I almost, like, give myself a day. So what I'll do... <clears throat> if I'm going to have a Zeppelin practice, is I'll go into the material that we're listening to. And if I'm, let's say I'm listening to Pandora, and I'll turn on the Led Zeppelin channel just so I can get my, like, I can get my ears and my brain into this 60s, 70s British, you know, psychedelic blues hard rock mode. Mm-hmm. Or I'll listen to three or four Zeppelin records in succession just so I can get into that mode or I'll, I'll look at some pictures just so I can kind of like, it, it sounds hokey, but I can like capture the essence of what Paige does. Right. And the whole month before doing the tribute show, it'll be me listening to 75% Bud Zeppelin music and through the era too because there's so much to take in that, if you're if it's in your life, if it's in the mix when you're on your way to somewhere or you know, you're running or doing whatever it's in your headphones, if, if you can like have it, you know, on your plate, then it's much more palatable to actually like play as a convincing tribute guy. So if I go into a Led Zeppelin practice cold and I haven't like touched on any of this stuff, then I have to reach a lot further or I think the playing sounds a lot less like Paige just kind of sounds like classic rock guitar that you hear on like jam tracks. Sounds nondescript. Country is the same way. When we when we go into a slew of shows in a row, we go to Nashville, uh, especially when we go to Nashville, there's a ton of great players down there. There's a ton of great chicken picker guys down there. There are tons of guys that can play pedal steel. The list goes on. I will step up the practicing. I will step up the listening. I will, you know, listen to 
of best country guys of the last 30 years. I mean, all the way back down to, like, Elvis's guitar players, like the Carl Perkins and James Burton, the rockabilly dudes, Scotty Moore, all the way up to Brad Paisley, and, and listen to these guys and see how they approach it. That's the biggest thing. If you can shift your mind into, you know, it's a Led Zeppelin day or it's a country guitar player day or it's a, you know, Eric Church day, then it's, it's you can actually slip into these modes and, you know, sound convincing and sound like you actually, I mean, I like the music, both bands across the board. Um, the country thing has become more mainstream and it has a, a certain flair like like classic rock did like like the eighties did. It has a look, it has a way of life, all that stuff, and there's aspects about it that are really interesting to be a part of. And same with the uh same with doing the tribute band. But the view is definitely different from stage. The the, the fans that come and see both bands, that's also pretty cool. Definitely, I imagine so Say, what was the experience like? Because I know that um, it's been prefaced before. I know that you've opened for people like Lady Antebellum and Miranda Lambert. What's that experience like? I mean, do you get a chance to actually get yourself acquainted with these people? Is it kind of surreal for you? What's that like? The Let's go back to maybe three years ago this summer. We played a country festival in uh, Kadat. We played Country Fest, and we played there three days. And on this one day, we were able to open up the main stage like it was like the noon slot. So they put the they put the Wisconsin band on noon slot. You know, they get us back there at ten o'clock in the morning. Of course, you know, we've got, you know, classic two hours of sleep in us from the, the night before show. Sure. So we're just kinda of back there hanging on to whatever little energy we have and then you walk back and it's like tour bus festival and you see Gretchen Wilson and here comes the name drop moment, but whatever. Um, on that bill was, what was that? Steel Magnolias, Justin Moore, I think Gary Allen. It was kind of a blur out there, to, to tell you the truth. Uh, Miranda Lambert and Gretchen Wilson. So I know that on the day it was Justin Moore, Gretchen Wilson, and Miranda Lambert. And mm-hmm. we uh, we did our opening slot, and we're loading in. And you're like, oh, man, are we going to see these guys? Are we going to talk to them? And I got to act normal, act normal. Just be cool, you know, whatever, all the whole thing. You know, they like it when you're cooler, all well, that. So, um, so there's Justin Moore, regular guy, hanging out, lounge chair. He's got his tour bus, his awning. He's got Sports Center on one TV and his Xbox on the other. He is as regular as everybody else, which was totally cool. Not not having any like strange you know alienation or like star moments or anything, so we didn't like go up to him and be like, "Hey man, I play Madden too." Blah blah blah. We was just like, "Oh, there he is, hanging out." Uh, after the show is over, this was really goofy. We go back to like the little cafeteria area where there's like crew and um, you know managers and and the other bands. Um, and we're we're hanging out at one table, and we kind of look over our shoulder and see a person that looks like Miranda Lambert, but she's just, again, very comfortable, very relaxed, hanging out, eating lunch, totally normal. Didn't talk to her, didn't do anything. My only star moment was is that I, you know, stood behind her in line to get 
whatever lunch was being served that day. Just totally normal person. I think that's almost cooler than, you know, diving over eight people to get an autograph, you know, on a body part or something like that. It's it's if you can just be like, Yeah, that was that. We were just talking about nothing, being normal. Because when you see him on stage, you're like, God, it's a totally different, you look totally different, everything's different, you know, the setting's different. When you're back there hanging out, it's just, it's just kind of cool. Oh, I imagine so. That's awesome. Now, I have one final question for you. So on the horizon for Joey, what's happening? What's going on? What do we have that's new and interesting? Any kind of products, any kind of places people can see you? Where do they get to you directly or your bands? Uh, I think that in terms of the stuff that's coming up, it's going to be what we think is cool. With the the tribute band, the the No Quarter, the the Led Zeppelin tribute, we'll do, we're doing a show here, Milwaukee, Shankal, and that's Mm going to be, we're actually doing a album show, and it's going to be a record that, Let's up when I came out with this song remains the same live album, but they put it into like this like fantasy sequence with with um, movie moments and live music moments and all this stuff. We're playing to the movie, so we're gonna run a video, I think on the side and in the back of us while we play. Kind of a weird approach to a tribute band, but we're just trying to do something a little different. Right. Hopefully that worked. Um, so that's been fun to rehearse and make a make a run at. Lova Nova's going to make another album and support the existing albums we have. We have three. We're trying to make number four. Trying to do something different for that. Uh, trying to make sure that we can find this, this cool little niche that is, you know, instrumental funky music that we do mm-hmm. and trying to find the venues to do that. I think we're going to do a little traveling, head out east for some for some outdoor festivals that, you know, subscribe to that genre of music. And as far as Saddlebrook, uh, the push is totally on. We're, we're making attempts to write what we think is some decent music, get in the studio, most likely going to cut EPs or, or what, we, what we'll call single, single songs. With the, we're, I think we're going down to Nashville next week to play and do some, like, writer's nights and, use those things to solidify our um, our slots at CMA week, which will come up in June. So uh, everything totally exciting. Obviously, in the Midwest, when it gets warmer, you know, the shows become more robust and, and more festive. So we're looking forward to that um, with all the bands, actually. So that'll be cool. So we're just trying to work hard, prepare, and make sure none of our, you know, stuff is broken <laughs> in these winter months and, and get ready for spring and summer. That's absolutely awesome. Now, before I forget, I want to go through the rundown with you. I want to make sure people know how to get a hold of you because obviously Joey is on Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. He is also on Twitter, which is at Joey Carini. In case you don't know how to spell it, it's C-A-R-I-N-I. I also know that you have a MySpace page. I know that your music oh, yeah. is on uh, YouTube, obviously. Uh, com and Saddlebrook also, of course, being on Facebook and Twitter as well. And just to remind once again, February 2nd, 9.30, uh, for those of you that are local, they're playing at Brewski's. I plan on being there at some point. I don't know when, but I will be there. I'm making it a, I'm making it my business to come and see your band because I don't do country bands. I don't listen to them often. So 
I'm kind of going out of my realm of comfort a little bit. Just because it's you, Joey. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing that. That's not true. I have a couple of friends that play country, but it's too damn depressing, for lack of a better term for me. Yeah. yeah, We are are definitely... We are definitely will prove that we are not depressing folks, especially after 11 o'clock at night. Because I'll be like standing there right in front of it, try to just hedge my way in there and be like, yeah, you remember me, buddy? Yeah, let's just. Yeah, I'm judging you. You're being judged. (laughs) That's right. No, of course not. I just want to go out and enjoy your band, of course. And before I forget, obviously, in addition to all the other talents that Joey has, you can also reach him at Shore West Realtors because he has actually got a day job. That's surprising to me that you actually have this. But yes, he is in the realtor area as well. So I wanted to throw that out there. Have I forgotten anything? Any form of contact info? Any other place they can find you? Uh, the page that I haven't pushed enough is the Reverb Nation page that I've got. Okay. We'll use the word a smattering of originals up there. And that's through a bunch of different bands in the last 10 years. And it's gonna, I'm going to keep adding to it as long as I can find that free time that I have so much of. But that's got music from various projects. And and it looks all cool and put together, and there's a mobile app for it. So it's it's in that Twitter, Facebook world, too. Oh, my God, how awesome. Absolutely wonderful. And just so that you all know, obviously, once I get done with the show, which is standard practice, I will go ahead and I'll post up all of Joey's information on my show page in addition to my personal page so this way everybody can access it. And I'll also post up a link to this interview because once we get done, people can go back and listen to this, whether you know they're listening to it, obviously, archived now. All year round, you can go back and listen to Joey Carini 25 times if you want. Um, yeah. So that's really cool. So all I can say to you is I have enjoyed my time immensely. I think you're absolutely wonderful. I'm very excited to get a chance to meet you in person. I'm just yeah. I'm in I'm in awe of your talent. I, I really am. Likewise, likewise. I will. I'm glad you contacted me, and I will. Um, I will try and bribe you with whatever the uh, venue has to offer for bribes. For, you know. <laughs> I am certain <laughs> that I will have a favorable. list of demands. Yes, I'm going to think about it, and I will get back with you. And, and by the way, when you get the answer to that question I asked you, make sure you Facebook me because I'm really I'll, curious to find out. Definitely, I will. If you do that. It'll come. To, it'll come to me in a in a in a, in a dream. Blue a blue flash of steaming foggy, you know, <laughs> flashing lights, whatever. <laughs> All right, young man, I'm going to let you go back to your day, and thank you so much for taking the time. And please come back and visit me again. You can come back on my show anytime you like. Absolutely. All right, honey. You have yourself a great day. I'll see you on Saturday. Yes, a thousand thank yous for doing this today, too. Anytime. Anytime, doll. We'll be talking in the near future. Sounds good. All right, dear. Take care. All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that was my exclusive interview with Joey Carini. I just wanted to throw out one more time. Of course, he has a Facebook page, which is a personal page, in addition to, obviously, his band Saddlebrook, who's also on Facebook as well. He can be reached via Twitter, which is, again, at Joey Carini. His actual band, uh, Saddlebrook, is also on Twitter, which is at Saddlebrook, all one word together. If you're looking for Saddlebrook on Facebook, that would be Saddlebrook Music, uh, www.saddlebrookband.com. And as he mentioned, the Reverb Nation thing, as well as, of course, uh, MySpace and YouTube. Absolutely amazing talent. Again, uh, like I wanted to say, I'm just really, really looking forward to having an opportunity to hear his band and, of course, meet him in person for the first time. He sounds like an absolutely marvelous guy with a tremendous amount of talent. So just two quick things before I let you off the hook here. First of which, tomorrow we're going to have a 5 o'clock Central Standard show, which is, of course, with another amazing musician who just 
he just resonates Johnny Cash. It's the first thing I can think of. He's young. He is handsome. He is talented. He has just a number of accolades under his belt as well. So it would seem we have back-to-back musicians this week, definitely talented, handsome gentlemen. So 5 o'clock to Central Standard Time, Matthew Schultz. I will be going ahead and I will be posting up a bunch of his different links and information so you can check him out ahead of time. And the last thing I wanted to do is just, of course, obviously, to pay tribute to our sponsor for this week, which is, of course, Nicole with Labrie Products. Um, If you've ever asked yourself exactly what's in your skincare products, you know that most of us read the labels of the particular foods that we eat, but have you ever stopped to read the labels of what you put on or as it relates to your skin? Did you know that it only takes seconds for chemicals in our skincare products to enter into your bloodstream? Which, amazingly, I did not know that until I got affiliated with Labrie Pure and Natural. They use only natural ingredients. Pure aloe vera gel is the first and most abundant ingredient in each of the Labrie skincare products. And in addition, it's followed up by natural extracts, botanicals, and minerals. Labrie Pure and Natural can take care of all your skin problems, whether it be wrinkles, age spots, acne, eczema, psoriasis, dryness, or even just to give your skin the benefit of nature's healing plant. Now, Labrie prides itself on making the most natural skincare products and, and luckily at a very affordable price. Now, if you go to Nicole's website, which is www.nicoleann.labrie.com, you can go ahead and order a free, and that is free, seven-day starter kit. The only thing that you're asked for is just a small shipping fee of $6.95. So in essence, folks, basically it is free. And then you can see what Labrie can actually do for you. And additionally, there is also money-making opportunities on the other side as it relates to Labrie business opportunities. And again, you want to get a hold of Nicole for that reason. And that, again, is www.nicoleann.labrie.com. And she can be reached directly at 414-852-3515. Okay, folks, I want to go ahead and one more time say thank you to Mr. Joey Carini. It's been an absolutely wonderful experience spending the last hour with him and, of course, with you. I want to say thank you to the listening audience. And please make it a point to tune in tomorrow to listen to my interview with Matthew Schultz. You have a great day. We'll see you then.